just because people may support the fact that women are equal to men is a hard one to use. But just to give you a sense of the data then, we've been measuring the Reykjavik index for four years now since 2018. There's been barely any movement in terms of the overall average. So at the moment, the Reykjavik index score is 73. And what that means, score of 0 to 100, and all 100 would mean is that the society we were doing the research in didn't have gender-based prejudice in terms of leadership. So that gap between 73 and 100 is a measure of prejudice. So if men and women are starting off in a race or they're driving 100 kilometres, they're going along equally until the 74th kilometre and then women just hit a wall and can't carry on anymore. So that's broadly how it looks. Now, if we, and it varies obviously between countries, but if we look at men and women in every country where we've done the research, there is prejudice against women leaders, and that's held by women as well as men. So that's the first thing that often surprises people. Women are complicit too in this prejudice against female leadership. But in every country that we've done the work, men carry more prejudice than women. So overall, only by about five points, but in some countries it could be as big as 10 points. Now, back to this point on younger men. It is astonishing. We've been seeing it for the last couple of years as we've done the work. So let's just look at the G7 group of countries where the issue it is most significant. And of all the countries, it's at its most significant in Germany, actually. So take an overall index of young people. The index for people aged between 18 and 34 is 69 out of 100. Whereas if you look at the index for people aged between 55 and 65, it's 77. So that's a significant gap that younger people are carrying more prejudice against women in leadership than that older group of the boomers. Hi everyone, I'm your host Michelle King and I'm joined by Kelly Thompson and you are listening to The Fix. It's a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equity, equality, and inclusion in the workplace and beyond. Just a quick one before we start, if you love our podcast and all the hard work that goes into it, then please do us a favor and hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. Your support means so much, so thank you. One of the questions I often get asked by people is, Michelle, surely gender equality will just be achieved in time. Aren't we becoming more progressive? Won't younger generations ensure that gender equality is achieved simply because they hold more liberal views? And my answer to every single one of these questions is a very solid no. The belief that we'll just achieve equality through the passing of time is actually one of the real reasons why we'll never achieve equality, no matter how much time we have. Equality is a practice. It's something that we do. It requires every single one of us to take action every day to value difference. And this is something that we need everyone to do if we're going to build a more equitable working world. The starting point for tackling inequality is being really honest about where we're at and the beliefs that we hold, which inform how we think and ultimately result in the lack of action we're taking to tackle inequality. If you believe inequality will be achieved with the passing of time, then this podcast episode is here to really tackle that belief. 
On a happy note, most of us do hope for a more equal world. In 2020, Pew Research Centre conducted a study which found that an average of 94% of people measured across 34 countries thought that it was important for women in their country to have the same rights as men, with 74% saying that this was very important. But when we dig a bit deeper, the data is clear that there are differences between women's and men's attitudes towards gender equality. In many countries, women place more importance on gender equality than men do. And we can add to that mix this finding that men tend to be more optimistic than women about prospects for gender equality actually coming to fruition. In Japan, for example, 77% of men say it's likely that women in their country will eventually attain or already have the same rights as men. That's compared to only 58% of women in the same country. Overall, though, most people are optimistic and an average of 75% think it's likely that women in their country will eventually have the same rights as men. In fact, if you go to the Netherlands, India, the Philippines or Mexico, you'll find that an overwhelming 90% of people hold this optimistic view. But why are we so optimistic that we'll achieve gender equality with the simple passing of time? Obviously, I'm less optimistic than Kelly. And, you know, for me, the reason I tend to be a bit more pessimistic is because one of the most common beliefs that people hold about gender equality is that it's simply a matter of time until women are more equally represented in positions of power. And we hold on to the idea that women will eventually catch up to men, despite the numerous research studies showing this is not going to be the case. For example, the Global Gender Gap Report in 2017, published by the World Economic Forum, consistently finds that based on current trends, the global gender gap won't be closed for another 100 years which is an increase from the 2016 prediction of 83 years. And worse, the gender economic gap won't be closed for another 217 years. And as I share in my book, you know, women really shouldn't have to be this patient. Waiting out inequality isn't a solution, it's a cop-out. It also prevents real change because companies tend to take up these tokenistic efforts as they don't really believe real change is required to solve inequality. And so this is why you see things like recruitment quotas targets, women fixing solutions, none of which leads to sustainable change. A really great example of this is once your workplace appoints one woman to a senior leadership role, the chances of them appointing a second woman in a high profile position reduces by about 50%. I mean, that's unbelievable. And this is because workplaces have what we call an implicit quota in place for hiring minorities. So having one female leader in place is evidence, you know, that your organization is supportive of gender equality because you've got your token woman leader. So ironically, when organizations appoint one woman leader, they're less likely to appoint any more. And this is why we can't achieve equality by simply waiting it out. We have to tackle the biases, the beliefs, and the lack of action that managers are taking to build a workplace that really works for women. On today's podcast, we're joined by Dr. Michelle Harrison, Global CEO of Kantar Public, who's going to be discussing the recently published findings of the fourth and extended edition of the Reykjavik Index for Leadership, which highlights entrenched prejudice towards women leaders. 
Launched in 2018, the Reykjavik Index for Leadership measures and tracks progress in society's perceptions of women's and men's suitability to lead across 23 economic sectors. Together with women political leaders, Michelle and her company have conducted this groundbreaking research and together will unpack why societal attitudes have stalled when it comes to advancing gender equality in leadership. Just because people may support the fact that women are equal to men is a hard one to use. But just to give you a sense of the data then, we've been measuring the Reykjavik Index for four years now since 2018. There's been barely any movement in terms of the overall average. So at the moment, the Reykjavik Index score is 73. And what that means, score of 0 to 100, and all 100 would mean is that the society we were doing the research in didn't have gender-based prejudice in terms of leadership. So that gap between 73 and 100 is a measure of prejudice. So if men and women are starting off in a race or they're driving 100 kilometres, they're going along equally until the 74th kilometre and then women just hit a wall and can't carry on anymore. So that's broadly how it looks. Now, if we, and it varies obviously between countries, but if we look at men and women in every country where we've done the research, there is prejudice against women leaders, and that's held by women as well as men. So that's the first thing that often surprises people. Women are complicit too in this prejudice against female leadership. But in every country that we've done the work, men carry more prejudice than women. So overall, only by about five points, but in some countries it could be as big as 10 points. Now, back to this point on younger men. It is astonishing. We've been seeing it for the last couple of years as we've done the work. So let's just look at the G7 group of countries where the issue is most significant. And of all the countries, it's at its most significant in Germany, actually. So take an overall index of young people. The index for people aged between 18 and 34 is 69 out of 100. Whereas if you look at the index for people aged between 55 and 65, it's 77. So that's a significant gap that younger people are carrying more prejudice against women in leadership than that older group of the boomers. Across all G7 nations, young people, especially men, hold the least progressive views. This is a finding that really shocked me. You know, the youngest age group, 18 to 34, reports a lower index score. So their score was 69 compared to older generations whose index score was about 74. So that's for people aged 35 to 54. And actually, there's even a higher score for older people aged 55 to 65 who hold a 77 score on the index. And that really means we're becoming less progressive in the views we hold towards gender equality. These findings really point to what we call a re-traditionalization of both young women and young men across the G7 countries. And this generational gap within G7 countries is really pronounced in countries like Japan and Germany, where the gap between younger and older age groups are more than 10 points. And with an index score of only 55, young German men are one of the groups showing the highest gender prejudice across 22 countries, alongside men in Indonesia, China, Poland, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. So what's causing this backlash or retraditionalization when it comes to young people and advancing equality? When we look at society, people, especially in the G7, they have a presumption that as societies develop over time, they are moving to a more progressive viewpoint. And that's because 
the period after the post-Second World War, there was a lot of social progression, but it doesn't mean it's always going in the same direction. And right now it doesn't appear to be. So what are the reasons that younger people may be adhering to traditional stereotypes of men and women more than older people? number of different reasons, but none of these are proven. They're just ideas that have been raised by other women leaders around this subject. There has been a huge amount of work done in schools to make women feel much more confident about equality in the future. That may be at the detriment of boys who have not been getting that kind of support. Also, it could well be to do with economic inequality. We haven't delved into that sufficiently yet. And if society is providing opportunities to women and yet men are feeling that they're not also being incorporated in that, that may also be making them feel very concerned about their own position and then moving back towards more traditional norms. I mean, for me, it is also in the way when I might look at, for instance, at some of the splits in society in the United States, you can see all of these things happening together in a society. The Reykjavik Index for Leadership is based on an exploration of this simple question. For each of the following sectors or industries, do you think men or women are better suited to leadership positions? If a person answered with both equally suitable, that means one plus point on the index. The index then takes these responses and ranks 23 sectors for their perceived suitability for both male and female leaders. So it's a measure of the extent to which across society, men and women are viewed to be equally suitable for leadership. Any score of under 100 means men are perceived as more appropriate for leadership in that sector. Spoiler alert, no sector scores 100. But which sector do you think gets closest to 100? That would be the sector that's perceived by people to be the most suitable for gender equality in leadership. The answer is media and entertainment. Across the G20 countries, the index score for this sector is 78. And when you narrow it down to the G7 countries, the score rises to 81. Perhaps reflective of the prominent role that women played in fighting the pandemic, pharmaceutical and medical research is positioned in sixth place in terms of perceptions of equal suitability for men and women to lead, with a G7 index score of 80. And in the UK, the score is 87, which is up nine points on the previous year. But while there's been much discussion about the successful response of female leaders to the COVID-19 crisis, government and politics ranks are only number eight with an index value of 78. And if you're listening to us from Germany, only 48% of women and 34% of men would be very comfortable having a woman as head of government, despite Angela Merkel being the second longest serving chancellor in German history. And without wanting to make any of our listeners cry, Just sit with this finding for a moment. In not one single country does any group express complete comfort with the concept of a woman as head of government or CEO of a major company. Since we first started the research, we've seen what to start with was just a complete surprise for me and now no longer is because I'm used to it. We've seen this split in the G7 group between four countries, and again, to use this word progressive, between four countries that are more progressive and three that aren't, and there isn't too much change really going on. So amongst this more progressive group, which is just what we mean by that, is countries that carry a lesser amount of prejudice against women, yet it is still significant. We've got the UK, and we've got Canada, and we've got France, and we've got the United States. And they are sitting several points above this other group in the G7, which is Italy, 
Japan and Germany. And Germany is always the one that people are drawn to and are curious about because it had female political leadership for so many years and yet has the highest levels of prejudice against women in leadership across the G7. Now, a few things that seem to be consistent. We look at this across many different sectors. And what you see in the groups where the prejudice is higher is that there are a number of sectors where women just haven't been allowed in. And I use it in sort of inverted commas. So in engineering, in aerospace, in automotive, in IT, in gaming, in AI, in defense and policing, the levels of prejudice against women in those sectors are still very significant. Whereas if you look in the other four, UK and Canada and France and the US, you see prejudice in those sectors against women, but not to quite the same degree. There has been an accommodation that women are allowed, again, in inverted commas, to do the hard technical stuff. That's one of the things that really influences it. If we look at the sectors overall, you can see that across the board, progress has been made in sectors like media and television. And actually, the sectors that tend to be associated with a high level of ability to communicate or to nurture, etc. So you see this split, but the important one, I suppose, is what you might call the hard technical engineering subjects. And the question there is always, have women stepped in? And you can see, for instance, in France, women are doing so well in the pharmaceutical and, and natural science area. And you can see in the UK, quite a lot of progression across all of these different sectors. And that seems to be a distinguishing factor. And back to my childhood, and I do remember being told that my parents had come back from parents' evening at school and they told me very confidently that the teacher had said that for a girl, I was really good at maths. Now, that was the 1980s. I don't think in England right now that that kind of thing would be said, dear God, I hope not. From the data we're looking at, there are still large numbers of countries where there is an inbuilt prejudice against women in those kinds of subjects. Iceland is one of the countries that's often looked to and described as the shining star when it comes to gender equality. And we've had the privilege of actually interviewing the Prime Minister of Iceland on what they've done. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, check it out. But this index really found that Iceland is uniquely progressive compared to all the other countries surveyed. In fact, on the ranking, it has an index value of 92, which is 10 points ahead of the next most progressive country like Spain and the United Kingdom, which both hold a score of 82. So here, Michelle's going to unpack for us what we can learn from Iceland. What is Iceland doing when it comes to advancing equality that really works? They are the shining star, right? They give us all hope. This was the first year that we'd done the Reykjavik Index for Iceland. And I was just a little bit nervous because we were so hoping that we would see that all that Iceland had done had created equality in the way that men and women were viewed in terms of leadership. And indeed, it pretty much has. So again, to remind ourselves, the index is from naught to 100 and 100 just means equality. And Iceland overall are an index of 92. So if the average for the G7 is 73, I mean, they are streets ahead of other countries. Now, even in Iceland, there is a gap between men and women. So the Reykjavik index in Iceland for women is 94. And for men, it's 90. But in Iceland, the patterns we talked about in terms of younger people coming through with higher levels of prejudice, we don't see that in Iceland. 
Not at all. So they have achieved an enormous amount. And we were at the Reykjavik Forum in November and discussing this. And from the Icelandic political and business leaders we were talking to, they felt a number of things were absolutely key, one of which was genuinely the provision of childcare and the expectation that men do take paternity leave, the ability to really be clear that the society does not believe that women who are in leadership are therefore neglecting their roles as parents, that parenting is equally carried by men and women, that the structures are in place to support that, that there isn't a culture of not just discrimination against women, but cultural norms that denigrate women who work when their kids are young. So it's a combination of things that are cultural, that are structural, that are encouraged in all aspects of society. And then there's a wonderful woman who had a leadership role in the Icelandic police force. And she also talked about the fact that it's the resilience of the public policy intervention that has continued now for years without weakening, just pushing this through, sustaining it every day in organisational terms, measuring outcomes and in social terms, measuring outcomes. So this not just putting the structures in place, not just encouraging them in every way, but measuring progress year by year and resilient focus on it. Finally, Dr. Michelle Harrison shares her thoughts on why we should be optimistic about the future when it comes to advancing equality. I think social change is very hard work, right? But that doesn't mean that we don't stay completely focused. So I think it is something that brings together all aspects of society, all stakeholders who have positional power and whether that's the way we're raising our kids, the way we parent, the way work as leaders in organisations, the way we talk about and respond to female leadership ourselves. I think all of these things are part of it. We are seeing changes, but there is inspiring data in the G20. You look at an Argentina or a Spain or a Mexico, and you look at the degree to which they are actually ahead in terms of this against some of the G7 countries. You look at Iceland and you see what can be done, but that's taken place over years. So I don't think these things are going to automatically get better with time. I think they are going to transform because I think we'll continue from all different angles to battle on it. I think we have to be really careful that we bring young people with us and we don't create further divisions in society. I think that's absolutely critical because I think when you see social regression, there are normally serious things that are driving that, that people are moving back to that position. So we have to ask what is going on with our young people in some countries and what can we do? Am I optimistic? I'm a believer that we will get there. And certainly my everyday working life is different to how it would have been when I first joined the workforce. What I don't think is that we're anywhere close to operating in an environment of leadership that is not heavily prejudiced against women. Dr. Jean Tweng is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University and author of the wonderfully titled book, iGen, Why Today's Superconnected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. In a piece for Time magazine, she looked at the behaviours of young voters, which includes both millennials born between 1980 and 1994, and iGen, or the internet generation, born between 95 and 2012. That's the first generation to spend their entire adolescence in the age of the smartphone. 
Dr. Twang writes that young voters are actually more conservative than is often assumed. Her research finds that the percentage of high school seniors who identified as conservative rose from 23% in 2000 to 29% in 2015, creating a group that's more conservative than the Reagan-era Gen X teens of the 1980s. The internet generation was raised during the recession and they live with anxiety about getting good jobs in a time of income inequality. This gives them laser focus on their economic prospects. Although iGen and the millennials stand apart from older generations in their support for LGBTQ plus issues, at the moment they're not much more supportive of gender or racial equality than boomers and Gen Xers are. Twang writes that data from the General Social Survey shows that young white people's attitudes towards black people have barely budged since the late 1990s, and their support for diverse neighbourhoods, schools and workplaces is virtually unchanged since the 70s. But why? Twang's explanation for these findings is that iGen was raised in a highly individualistic culture, favouring the self over the group. Phrases like, do what's right for you, and believe in yourself and anything is possible, echoed through their childhood. Individualism has brought both equality and some reactions against it, both support for individual rights and a dislike of group solutions. These findings perhaps go a long way to helping explain some of the challenges we'll face with supporting the next generation in the fight for equality. The bottom line is that the fight for equality will not be achieved with the passing of time alone. That's true of society at large and within all of our workplaces. And as we discussed in last week's episode, to make workplaces work for everyone, we need to enrol everyone in that endeavour. And this starts with helping everyone from every generation to understand why greater equality ultimately serves to benefit them and to learn how they can take action towards achieving it. Thank you all so much for tuning into our episode today. I love putting this podcast together. It's such a privilege. And I really hope you all enjoyed what we shared today. You now have a great response. If anybody's ever going to ask you, surely gender equality will be achieved in time. You know that the answer is no. So before you go, just a quick reminder, if you're interested in partnering with us on the podcast or maybe being a guest on the show, then please can you reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. And you can also sign up to our monthly newsletter on the website and you can even contribute your story there. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week. Bye.